This is the America's Quarterly Podcast. I'm Brian Winter. The rights of LGBTQ people have been a key battleground between social conservatives and progressives throughout Latin America in recent years. Today on the podcast, an overview of these issues and where they might be headed in years to come. It looks like the demographic trends are conspiring against social conservatism in Latin America. This is still an important part of the electorate, and in some demographics, social conservatism is still growing. But when you look at the younger generations, the generations with more university education, you do see that social conservatism is not the direction in which young Latin Americans are going into. When it comes to LGBTQ rights, Latin America has seen a certain push and pull in recent years. Starting in the 2000s, some countries around the region became a reference for greater rights and freedoms, legalizing marriage equality, and making strides in protecting the safety of LGBTQ citizens. In recent years, though, some countries have seen something of a backlash, with the rise of evangelical Christianity in places like Brazil and Argentina, as well as other political factors. But look, this issue is complex because while in Brazil we've seen figures like Jair Bolsonaro or Nicolas Ferreira, a congressman who tried to mock LGBTQ people by taking to the House floor sporting a blonde wig, we've also seen names like Erica Hilton and Duda Salabert, the country's first trans women ever elected to the Brazilian Congress. This is also an issue that tends to defy the simple spectrum of left versus right. For example, last August in Nicolas Maduro's Venezuela, 33 men were arrested at Asana in what NGOs said was a clear example of homophobia. Given the complexity and the importance of this issue, we thought we'd dedicate an episode to it. Our guest is Javier Corrales. Javier is a professor of political science at Amherst College, in 2022, he published The Politics of LGBTQ Rights Expansion in Latin America and the Caribbean. He is also a member of the America's Quarterly Editorial Board. Javier, welcome back to the AQ Podcast. Thank you so much. We've spoken so much here on the podcast and in the pages of America's Quarterly about this conservative shift throughout Latin America, the increasing influence of conservative Christian movements and so on. So, Javier, what's your appraisal of how LGBTQ people are living today in the region? What, where do we stand in the broadest sense, given the way these political winds are blowing? The way that I would answer this question is perhaps separating two important LGBTQ constituencies in the region. So on the one hand, you have ordinary citizens, and on the other hand, you have the activists. I think the population faces, on the one hand, they're living in countries where the rights of LGBT folks have made a huge expansion. Not everywhere, of course, but where we have seen legal improvements and the rights being provided are truly some of the most progressive in the world. Some countries, 
legally speaking, are real world LGBT champions. And these rights are definitely improving the lives of many folks. Now, conditions on the ground don't necessarily improve that easily simply because the legal environment has improved. LGBT folks are the victim of the patriarchy. They're victims of homophobia and transphobia. And these elements are pervasive throughout society in Latin America. In addition, Latin America is a very violent region, and a lot of that violence is often directed at people who are seen as LGBTQ. So, for example, in the United States, this is not a big concern, but you may be you may be a person who identifies as LGBTQ and you're walking to work and you're not going to expect somebody to throw stones at you. In Latin America, you know, the average LGBTQ person would never rule that out, you know, a random attack. So it's not even getting killed, but those kind of street harassment. And we also know that at the workplace, not everything has improved. But nevertheless, in terms of rights, there has been a significant improvement. Javier, I know we're talking about a broad group of people here when we say LGBTQ. And within that movement, you have different people experiencing different things. Can you talk in broad terms about some of the subtleties there? The community that is fighting heteronormativity is a very diverse community, as we know. And um, uh, and so they each have common goals, but they all have uh, individual goals. So there's no question that the experience of a gay man in Latin America is very different from a poor lesbian and certainly different from a trans person, young, who is starting out. And this is something that um, it's even hard for the LGBTQ movement to understand as well, uh, that there are groups that, even within this community, have some privileges that are not available to other members of this community. Now, the community that is fighting for LGBTQ rights is living a very difficult moment. It's living a moment of regression in which most of the energies are being devoted now, not so much to advancing new rights, but trying to contain reversals. And it's a very different attitude at the political level than was the case seven or eight years ago. I want to get into some of these more recent setbacks, Javier. But before we do, I want to make sure that we kind of tell the story for our audience that may not be fully aware of all this history, you spoke about the dramatic expansion of rights in some, not all countries, recognizing Latin America, incredibly diverse, so many different countries, so many different realities. But we did see several countries undertake an expansion of rights in the 2000s, especially. Can you tell us that story? Sure. So, Latin America was the land of machos and homophobia. And even during the transition to democracy, there was very little attention to the plight of LGBTQ communities. So it took a while for the new democracies to begin to pay attention to the political concerns of this community. But when they finally got going, we started to see really rapid improvements Things accelerated with decriminalization of homosexuality. Then you begin to see some public policies on behalf of helping 
victims of discrimination. Uh, you see also public policies to help AIDS patients. This was big in the late 80s, early 1990s. And in the late 1990s, what you begin to see is concerted effort to now gain new rights, specifically civil union rights and LGBT rights. And after stumbling uh, uh, here and there, you begin to see huge changes. Argentina in 2010 became the second country in the global south before the United States to offer same-sex marriage. It was followed by um, Uruguay, Brazil. And this was truly extraordinary because we wouldn't have anticipated this transformation 15 years ago, necessarily. Looking back, Javier, I mean, do you have a developed view on what changed? Because it coincided with an improvement of things here in the United States, more or less. We saw similar trends here. I always hate, as the American host of this program, to make it about what happened in the U.S., but was that part of the story, or were there other more complex things happening locally? A lot of this effort was maybe inspired by cues taken from abroad, but mostly based on the realities at home. The natural evolution of the organizations in Latin America that were fighting for human rights, which were very strong and were not necessarily copied after the United States because the struggle for human rights in Latin America is very much Latin America-based, evolved into incorporating the need to think about sexual citizenship and to think about ways to deal with heteronormativity. And remember that the progress in the region picked up speed when things were slowing down in the United States. Brazil, for example, became a champion of very progressive policies towards the AIDS crisis in the late 80s and early 1990s, when in the United States, things were paralyzed. So there were moments in which Latin American LGBT groups were driving at a faster speed and taking new lanes that were not exactly what one would have uh, imagined would have been the result of a mere copying. But you don't want to overstate this argument either. These are globalized communities. These groups are very attuned to what groups elsewhere are doing and are constantly learning from each other. So let's take this now into the modern day, or at least the last couple of years, when, as we've noted, the trend was moving perhaps the other direction in some countries. And I think first of Brazil. I think of Jair Bolsonaro taking office in 2018. This, of course, was a president who made many anti-LGBT comments over the years, including saying that he would rather his son die in an accident than be gay, reflecting perhaps, you know, you can have a debate over which was the chicken and which was the egg, but these were years that also saw big social changes in Brazil, the rise of a more conservative movement, the rise of a, a certain kind of evangelical Christianity. Talk to us a little bit about the, what that has meant in practice for the LGBTQ community, not only in Brazil, but elsewhere around the region. I think one way to put the Bolsonaro period in perspective is to turn it into a paradigmatic case of something that we have observed elsewhere in the Americas, including the United States. What you have is a 
right-wing populist leader and movement, which is interested in concentrating power and eroding liberal democracy in a direction that is going to be very difficult to do. And they need political help to do this. And what these administrations end up doing is approaching the socially conservative part of the electorate and the socially conservative religious leadership and making a deal with them. And the deal is, tell me what you want policy-wise. I'll deliver it for you. But in return, you have to be okay with a number of other things I want to do in terms of concentrating power. And what's so remarkable about Bolsonaro is that he was able to do this fairly easily. And they were willing to forgive him for a number of other trespasses simply because he was seen as a champion of the most socially conservative policies that these groups wanted to obtain. This model is now very popular outside of Brazil. We're even seeing it in El Salvador with Bukele. We're seeing it with other politicians that are hoping to become president under a similar type of deal. We'll be back after this short break. The America Society Art Gallery is currently showing the second part of El Dorado, Myths of Gold, a group exhibition exploring the legend of El Dorado as a foundational myth of the Americas. Art at America Society is the longest standing space in the U.S. dedicated to exhibiting and promoting art from Latin America and the Caribbean. El Dorado Myths of Gold will be on view in New York until May 18, 2024. I want to be careful, though, not to catch this exclusively as a left-right issue, because it's also true that Nicolás Maduro has homophobic policies. Pedro Castillo, the former leftist president of Peru, also had some very conservative stances. I mean, do you agree that's an important distinction to make, that we have some homophobic figures on the left as well? It is an absolutely essential distinction to make. This is not a left or right wing issue. This is a distinction between true liberal Democrats in the region, and those presidents who have aspirations to concentrate power. And this is why folks like a socialist like Nicolás Maduro, a semi-lefty like AMLO, a former lefty like Bukele, once they have the intention to become presidents with magnified powers, end up approaching the religious groups with this deal. Cuba is an interesting case. It used to lock up homosexuals. Now, these days, LGBTQ parades are led by Mariela Castro, daughter of the former president, Raul Castro, and gender-affirming surgery is paid for by the Cuban state. You know, how do we understand this evolution? So what is so remarkable is how difficult it was in Cuba for same-sex marriage to arrive. Mariela Castro, under the dictatorship of Raul Castro, was a strong, strong, big vocal advocate of same-sex and transgender rights, and she went nowhere, nowhere during that time. 
There were many reasons for it. This is an illiberal administration. They don't like giving rights in general. But also you start to see the Castro administration starting to feel like it doesn't want to unnecessarily antagonize socially conservative groups that are beginning to emerge in Cuba. Cuba is starting to have a significant evangelical voice and it doesn't want a, a new conflict with the Catholic Church. Eventually, things changed. They decided to have a new constitution and, and then they finally decided to have a plebiscite on this and, and, and same-sex rights arrived. Now, what is so interesting about the problem of Cuba is that when you offer same-sex rights, which is great, and we want countries to do it and states to offer same-sex rights, but you don't offer so many other more fundamental rights, then it's sort of like a very um, minimal victory. There are so many subtleties here. Let me turn to another one. What has the impact been of the Argentine Pope's less conservative stance on homosexuality, remembering that Pope Francis said, who am I to judge? Right. We are absolutely witnessing some of the most important, small, but could be big movements in the Catholic Church on this question. We saw some of this opening during, a, like I said, during the age crisis, but since the eruption of same-sex marriage debate, we haven't seen that much movement in a direction of the church becoming a little bit more open-minded about this. I think most people who are interpreting the words of the Pope are saying that, yes, this is a Pope that is trying to make the church more welcoming of the LGBT community. And the latest thing is the Pope saying that it's okay for a priest to bless civil unions. The jury's still out as to what impact this is going to have. We know perfectly well that a large number of citizens in the Americas who are very welcoming of LGBT rights are what I call light Catholics, and they like to see the church go in this direction. But we need to see what the conservative side of the church is going to do. Maybe some European bishops or U.S. bishops feel comfortable, conservative, uh, you know, kind of like challenging Pope Francis. But I think in Latin America, this Vatican has some soft power to it. Is it possible that the conservative shift that we've seen in the last couple of years, as represented by Bolsonaro, but he's gone now? I mean, is it possible that the story here is really just of a a bump in the road, if you will, a painful bump in the road on this longer story of progress over the last 20 years? It could be a bump in the road, but it could also be more than just that. Let me say, yes, Bolsonaro is gone and he was defeated, um, but Bolsonarismo is not. It's going to transform into something else. But it looks like the demographic trends are conspiring against social conservatism in Latin America. This is still an important part of the electorate, and in some demographics, social conservatism is still growing. But when you look at the younger generations, the generations with more university education, you do see that social conservatism is not the direction in which young Latin Americans are going into. 
If they're turning conservative many times, it has to do with issues of what are we going to do about corruption? What are we going to do about crime? What are we going to do about taxes and the welfare state? So I don't know. So maybe in that sense, it's a bump in the road that's going to stay here for a little bit, but maybe just generational. Who knows? Maybe I was being too optimistic here. What are the countries that you're watching most closely right now? Where are these these battles being most acutely fought? I would say, let's talk about Brazil and Argentina. So the issue in Brazil is that Brazil in 2022 celebrated the largest number of weddings in its history. The largest number of companies were declared to be LGBTQ friendly. So you see this remarkable progress. But like I said, it's still the country that gave us Bolsonarismo. It's also a country where even though Lula himself is quite progressive, he is very clearly aware of the fact that he's operating in a more conservative country with a more conservative Congress than he did 20 years ago. And he seems sometimes almost scared of some of these progressive social issues. Absolutely. These socially conservative forces are able to generate a bit of a chilling effect. It's sort of like, uh, don't go too crazy go too far with some of the policies that you want to advance because we can cause trouble for you. So Brazil is a country to be watched because it has this dichotomy. Obviously, we're worried about the situation in Argentina. Argentina really is a world champion on LGBTQ rights, especially trans rights and a number of rights, very strong feminist movements an incredibly amazing change in reproductive laws. And we now have this strong support for the Millet administration. And we need to see whether Millet, when he gets further in trouble, when at some point presidents with a big agenda, a big ambition will run into some kind of trouble, whether he's going to go toward the socially conservative groups for political support. This is something that we want to see. We want to see to what extent we can see a true libertarian, non-socially conservative government stay there, or whether there's going to be some uh, uh, variation of the deal that I talked about. We are super worried about the Anglo-Caribbean because we are always mesmerized by the fact that you have strong liberal democracies in many of these countries with very non-welcoming LGBTQ rights happening simultaneously, defying the logic of, you know, in strong liberal democracies with a strong orientation toward tourism, you're going to see some gay friendliness. The Anglo-Caribbean doesn't have it. So we are always going to be paying attention to that region. Final question for you, Javier. Who are the people of the institutions to watch as well? I've asked about specific countries, but Are there any organizations or individuals out there who you think are worth worth watching as we continue to observe this issue? You know, um, one of the most important sources of optimism that I have when I look at the region is that I think today most Latin American countries have one or two, if not more, organizations that are strong enough, dedicated to this cause. But other than those, I think we need to continue to watch the courts. The courts in Latin America have been the 
main characters in producing some of these rights and norms that were so necessary. But they are not impervious to the conservative backlash. We were pretty dismayed by what we just saw in Panama. The courts recently issued two rulings reaffirming the ban on same-sex marriages, taking a very, you know, explicitly wanting to be reactionary on this question. So we don't know whether this is perhaps the new direction of legal thinking in Latin America or maybe a, a bump in the road, but definitely, definitely one needs to pay attention to what the courts are doing. Javier, you've given us a lot to think about and a really great broad roundup on this issue. Thank you so much for being with us on the AQ Podcast. Thank you so much, Brian. It was my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the America's Quarterly Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review, give us a rating, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The America's Quarterly Podcast is produced by Luisa Franco and edited in partnership with Human Group Media.